It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. It is October 14th. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for making me part of your day. The show is made possible by patrons like Jolene, WC, Caddy, and David, Mark, Shelley, Lair, Krista, Sam, and Paul. Couldn't do the show without you. They became patrons to support the program. You can as well. Just go to thepetecalendarshow.com and click on the link there, uh, or you can get any of the links in the description of this podcast. I got a note yesterday from a listener, Deanna, or Dina, I think it's Deanna, And she says, Pete, I love your shows. I think this is the time of year that we have to remind people that if they have lost a loved one, to be sure their name is taken off the voting rolls. This is great advice. If you are uh, a caregiver or your parents or you have a family member, a relative who recently passed away, it's very easy um, to go check in with the Board of Elections and make sure that they're, you know, that the, that they have the record that they are deceased. Uh, also, she says, if your neighbor has moved, they also need to be aware if you get two voter ballots in different names, let your party know there is only one of you and give them the right name. Uh, she says, I think that this might help clean up the voter rolls or maybe not. <laughs> I think it well, I think it'll help. I think it'll help. It's a good piece of advice, a good reminder. Um, you know, help the Board of Elections out. Gosh knows they are uh, they're swamped right now. Look, late list maintenance is difficult. It's difficult. Maintenance like that is difficult for any Board of Elections. Speaking of uh, difficult maintenance, if your website maintenance is uh, getting you down, feels like you're just spending all your time working on the website and you're not enjoying it, then uh, get somebody who does enjoy that stuff and is really good at it, and that's Schaefer Smith. All right, you know your business, but you might not know a lot about website design and maintenance. Schaefer Smith does. Uh, Schaefer Smith Design, professional services, corporate, small businesses, entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith can help you all with graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does logos like the one for the Pete Callender show. He did that one for me. Go to schaefersmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's schaefersmith.com. Alrighty, so we have another line of attack against Amy Coney Barrett. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Just going to play a couple of audio clips for you. Um, First, Here is what the media and a lot of people on social media, lefties on social media, this is what they are pushing as uh, proof that Amy Coney Barrett is a hypocrite. Kennedy, you know, the the arguments will be that that situation was distinguishable. Um, The nomination, the vacancy did not arise in the presidential election year. It arose the year before in June when when, uh, Justice Powell retired and Justice Kennedy was nominated in November of the prior year. Moreover, he was nominated after Bork's nomination had failed and Ginsburg withdrew his nomination. So the, the wrangling for the spot, the conversation about the spot, the existence of the spot um, had been in play for a long time before that. Moreover, Kennedy is a moderate Republican and he replaced a moderate Republican, Powell. Um, we're talking about Justice Scalia, you know, the staunchest conservative on the court, and we're talking about him being replaced by someone who could dramatically flip the uh, balance of power on the court. It's not a lateral move. So that's the soundbite. 
And when you just listen to that soundbite alone, it sounds like Amy Coney Barrett, when, by the way, she appeared on CBS, uh, one of their morning programs, to discuss. This was, by the way, audio that came from an interview that was done right after Scalia's death. And what she's arguing, what they are claiming she is arguing, I should be specific here, they are claiming she is arguing that they should not fill the seat because Scalia was a conservative. That is actually not what she is arguing. And if you listen to the very beginning of the clip, you will hear she actually just lays out the argument. She's not espousing the argument. Take a listen. Kennedy, you know, the, the arguments will be that that situation was distinguishable. Um the arguments will be. She's just saying, these folks are saying this, and here's the other argument over there. She's not taking a position. But here's the kicker. If you actually listen to the entire interview with her, which I did, um, she actually does give up an opinion. She offers an opinion that is that is left out of the reporting on this. One of the more egregious examples comes from Yahoo News, where they lead off the story, Catherine Krauchitz. I think that's how she pronounces it. She says, federal judge Amy Coney Barrett seemed to make a case against her own nomination back in 2016. No, she does not. She then goes on to say, in 2016, an interview with CBS News, Barrett argued against replacing a justice during an election year if the Senate and president were of different political parties. And no, she did not. She did not make the argument as one that she believes in. She stated that that is the argument that is being made by people, not her. Here's the entirety of her comment. You know, Amy, I don't know if you saw the GOP uh, debate, but on Saturday, Marco Rubio suggested that presidents don't nominate Supreme Court justices during election years. You are also a law professor. How valid is that assertion? Well, it's not. I, I've seen all of the tallies on blogs, and I have not done the historical research myself, but I gather that there have been six in the 20th century and 11 if you go back to the Civil War of confirmations that happened during presidential election years. But I think the question is, what does this precedent establish? And, and I don't think it establishes a rule for either side. In the you hear that? The question is, what does this precedent establish? And I don't think it establishes a rule for either side in the debate. The debate. I mean, if you look back, say, at the six that were confirmed in the 20th century in a presidential election year, um, all but one of those was not uh, confirmed, sorry, in a period of divided government, in a period of, sorry, united government. All right. So she was kind of she kind of messed that up. So let me I'll just to clarify six confirmations in the 20th century that were done in a uh, presidential election year. Five of them occurred when there was a, quote, united government. In other words, the president and the Senate were of the same political party. There was only one exception to that, and that was Anthony Kennedy. Um, where the president and the Senate were of the same political party. And it shouldn't be a surprise that the Senate is willing to push a president's nominees through in an election year when they share the same political affiliation. So what is she saying right there? She just described what we're seeing right now with her confirmation, right? She says it shouldn't be a surprise when the political when the uh, same party holds the White House and the Senate that they're going to push through their own nominee. Of course they will. Um, the one exception to that was Anthony Kennedy, and the one that was confirmed in a period of divided government before that was in the 1880s. 
And Justice Kennedy, you know, the, the arguments will be that that situation was distinguishable. Um, the nomination, the vacancy did not arise in the presidential election year. It arose the year before in June when, Pres- when uh, Justice Powell retired. So just to point, uh, and now we're into the clip that I played for you earlier, but just to be clear here, Kennedy's nomination was not in a presidential year. So the, the one example that, that Democrats and their allies in the media point to as proof of why Republicans shouldn't be, you know, nominating and, and confirming a judge of their choice to fill the vacancy, it, it isn't even based on a similar circumstance. And Justice Kennedy was nominated in November of the prior year. Moreover, he was nominated after Bork's nomination had failed and Ginsburg withdrew his nomination. So the, the wrangling for the spot, the conversation about the spot, the existence of the spot um, had been in play for a long time before that. Moreover, Kennedy is a moderate Republican and he replaced a moderate Republican, Powell. Um, we're talking about Justice Scalia, you know, the staunchest conservative on the court, and we're talking about him being replaced by someone who could dramatically flip the uh, balance of power on the court. It's not a lateral move. So the other point here to make is that the reference to Kennedy's uh, politics, I guess, as a moderate replacing a moderate on the court is simply meant she's offering this up as uh, simply as uh, a commentary on the fact that there wasn't a lot of opposition to him because, as you as she just said, you know, this was the one that Bork was put up for and he was rejected. They Borked him. His name became a verb for what Democrats do to Republican nominees. So Kennedy was put up there because he would pass muster with the Democrats who ran the Senate. It was a divided government. That's what she's that's what she's saying. So it was more palatable for them to approve the nomination. It's why the nomination of Kennedy was made in the first place, because the previous two didn't work. Um, You know, and, and finally, we the reality is we live in a different time. You know, Kennedy was confirmed unanimously. So incidentally was Scalia. And this is not the time we live in now, post-Bork. As we all know, confirmation hearings have gotten far more contentious. True. And so I just don't think we live in the same kind of time. So I think in some, the president has the power to nominate and the Senate has the power to act or not. And I don't think either one of them can claim that there's a rule governing one way or the other. All right. Very interesting, Professor. Well, now, isn't that interesting indeed? In sum, she says, the president has the power to nominate and the Senate has the power to act or not, which is what McConnell did with filling uh, with refusing to take Merrick Garland um, uh, up. Uh, He says, and I don't think either one or she says, and I don't think either one of them, the president or the Senate, can claim that there is a rule governing one way or the other. That's her opinion. She says the president has the power to nominate, the Senate can choose to confirm or not, and neither one has a claim that there's a rule governing it one way or the other. So, in fact, her opinion is the exact opposite of what the media is proclaiming her opinion was, which it wasn't. She clearly stated that this is the argument that people are making. And uh, this is how it's framed again by Yahoo News, quote, uh, Barrett's argument could also apply in 2020. Again, it's not her argument. She's merely stating the argument that others are making. This is so frustrating. Uh, It's a really good example, though. It really is a good example of how corrupt and garbage our media is. Here's another one. Um, Yesterday, during day one of the confirmation hearing, uh, 
Amy Coney Barrett said something um, with the word or the phrase sexual preference. They were, she was uh, talking with or you know, interrogated by Maisie Hirono. And during this conversation, she said something uh, about sexual preference and outrage ensued. How dare you use the term sexual preference? Stephen Krakauer, executive producer of the Megyn Kelly Show podcast. He's also uh, the editor and host of a newsletter called Fourth Watch, and it's also a podcast. He used to work at CNN and The Blaze and Mediaite and NBC. And anyway, um, he said, as recently as last month, Webster's Dictionary included a definition of preference as orientation or sexual preference. Okay, so here is the old, this is the original uh, Webster's Dictionary. It says... Um, on preference, it says the act of preferring, the state of being preferred, uh, one that is preferred, and then go down to definition number five. It says orientation sense slash sexual preference. In other words, that's that's how it's used, sexual preference. And then yesterday, it got changed. The Webster, Merriam-Webster Dictionary website changed the definition of the word. This is Orwellian. Changed that fifth bullet point, the fifth definition. Now it says offensive. They stuck the word offensive in there. We are allowing the left to redefine words in real time. And they're hysterically paranoid and delusional on this stuff. Sexual preference has been the term that... LGBT publications have been using up until a month, not even a month ago. I saw an article at The Advocate that used the term from September 26th. Come on, guys. Dial down the crazy. Speaking of uh, crazy, you'd be crazy if you don't go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus to pick up some of their uh, winter weather gear, like their military-grade underwears, thermal underwear, They've got field jackets, they've got wool and fleece toboggans and wool socks and Gore-Tex jackets. If you've got a hunter in your family uh, or somebody works outside, great gift ideas or an old Grouch's military surplus, and you can get this stuff for a lot cheaper uh, than you can find at most outdoor stores. Also, it's the top quality. It's U.S. military-grade military surplus. They've also got military-grade backpacks. They're going to last a lot longer than the ones that you get at the big box stores. Unfortunately, they are out of the body armor, but they do have – Yeah, there are a lot of people bought it. Sorry. Like, they're all out. Um, they have ammo cans. These are great for storage, for for ammo, obviously, but also for tools. You can get creative with this stuff. You use them for dry storage. Also, they can put together an emergency uh, kit for your car. Great for the wintertime. So you've got like the folding shovel. Uh, you got warm clothing and the space blanket, you know, the big tinfoil, shiny silver blanket. Uh, emergency rations that you can leave in the car so they're not going to get damaged by the heat or the cold. Um, and then a bag or ammo can to store it all in. It's a great idea. Uh, unique gift idea as well for Christmas that's coming. So uh, get on down to Old Grouch's Military Surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Shop is open Monday through Saturday. It is across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and online at oldgrouch.com. So I think Cal Cunningham is going to have to start having more affairs. Apparently, it's good for his poll numbers. Right now, a lot of Democrats are out there, I guess, trying to figure out who can I sleep with, bring them back to my house, uh, you know, have have sex in the marital bed, uh, because apparently this is what you need to do to pick up some percentage points in the polls. At least that's what I'm being told by Democrats 
and media. But I repeat myself, North Carolina voters don't seem to mind that Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Cal Cunningham had an affair, says uh, WRAL's senior reporter, producer, politics editor guy Matthew Burns, along with Colin Browder, David Crabtree, all did this story about polling that was done for WRAL. This is one of their polls by Survey USA has a confidence interval of between four and a half to four point eight percentage points, which means that you could swing essentially five points total in each direction. So keep that in mind as I tell you this. Cunningham now holds a forty nine thirty nine percent lead over Tillis. That's a ten point margin. Forty nine thirty nine. Okay, well, plus or minus four and a half either direction puts you about tied. This lead, forty nine thirty nine is up from 4740 that was done four weeks ago so cunningham picks up two points and tillis loses one point again margin of error uh so even the the two-point gain is within the margin of error that could just be a mistake that could just be an error but it's touted as Everybody in North Carolina doesn't care. See that the media wants to make this election about Cal Cunningham's uh, affair and the voters don't care about that. And maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. I think it's a pretty disgusting position to adopt, but maybe they don't care about it. Jay Leave, I think is his name, L-E-V-E or Leve, Leve, Levy, chief executive of Survey USA, says you have a specific action reaction. Women see the affair as appalling behavior from a man, and a man sort of sees it as, well, he's not so much of a church lady as I thought, this Cunningham fellow, adding that the evolution in the public's expectations about politicians' private lives that has benefited President Donald Trump in recent years is now helping Cal Cunningham. Yeah, the the evolution. I like how it starts with Donald Trump. No, it began with Bill Clinton. It began with Bill Clinton and... Folks didn't care on the left and in the media. They didn't care about what he was doing. They still don't, by the way. They still don't care. So this is why nobody on the right gave two flying fig newtons about what Democrats thought about Donald Trump's affairs, because you guys had already proven yourself to be dishonest on this topic, because when it was Bill Clinton, you didn't care if there were abuse allegations against him. You didn't care that he was using his position of power and authority to bed interns. You didn't care. So Trump comes along and says, hey, look at me. I'm having all sorts of affairs, too. I wrote a book about it. And um, all of a sudden, the Democrats are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. How could you support such a person? You're a Christian. You guys have already ruled that out as a disqualifying characteristic. And so Trump comes along, he wins, and so, yeah, now you got people that are like, okay, Cal Cunningham, he had an affair. Okay, so he flew his mistress into North Carolina and then uh, put her up at his house where he stooped her in the bed. Okay, whatever, we don't care, it's all about the Supreme Court. That's what this is about. Democrats will tell you that's what this is about. Cunningham holds a lead among women, 54-37, but Tillis did eat into part of that lead. Um, it was 54.30 about a month ago. So Tillis picked up like seven percentage points. Um, Tillis's 11-point lead among men has evaporated with Cunningham now holding a slight 45-43 percentage edge. Like, I'm kind of curious about that. What, really? Like, the fact that the guy's got a mistress, that 
is like, you know what? I'm going to vote for the guy now. Totally. Yeah, like I, that's a guy I can get behind. I don't understand it. I, and by the way, in case it hasn't come across, I'm really not buying these results. I, I mean, I'm, I don't doubt that people answer these questions. I don't doubt the methodology and all that. I just don't think that this is uh, representative. I, re- I just don't. I, I mean, maybe I just don't want to believe it, but this seems absurd to me. It just seems absurd that that you would have an 11-point uh, swing among men when they find out that Cal Cunningham is having an affair. More than 60% of the poll respondents said his affair had no impact on their votes. Okay, so what is the shift that we're talking about? These are the unaffiliateds or undecideds or something? 20% said they would be more likely to support Tillis now. Voters that are older, 65 and older, they had the sharpest reaction with 29% saying that they would be much more likely to back Tillis. Meanwhile, wealthier and more educated voters are more likely than poorer and less educated voters to say the affair would have an impact on the way that they vote. Skipping ahead here, uh, in the overall contest, Tillis leads Cunningham uh, among among older voters, 65 and older, he leads by six points, 50 to 44. Uh, and that is a reversal of Cunningham's earlier lead a month ago. Cunningham has dramatically widened his lead among younger voters, ages 18 to 49, which, by the way, a lot of these people still think this is just a texting scandal. In fact, media keep reporting it as a texting scandal. It's not a texting scandal, okay? It's a sex scandal, folks. It is a sex scandal. And I suspect there's more to come on it. Cunningham also picked up more support among moderate voters, city dwellers, and those who describe themselves as wealthy or upper middle class. While Tillis had stronger results in the latest poll among rural voters and those who describe themselves as middle class. So this is um, this is proof again that the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the uber of the uber rich and uh, the poor. That it's becoming this, uh, it's just hollowing out the middle of the Democratic Party. And you can thank Clinton, by the way, for that, Bill Clinton for that. That was his new uh, Democrat pitch all those years ago. And it worked. Moderates were four times as likely to favor Cunningham because of the Supreme Court issue, 37% to 9% for Tillis. So that's the big deal in that race. Meanwhile, Fox News's Evie Fordham reports that a conservative watchdog group has now filed an FEC complaint on Tuesday asking for an investigation into Democratic candidate Cunningham's March trip to California that used campaign funds after revelations of his extramarital affair. So this is early March. He flies out to California. And uh, so now this is what the third investigation because he's got the there's a third. He's got the one from the U.S. Army. He's got one from the inspector general. And now he's got one from the FEC. Uh, Quote, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, says Americans for Public Trust Executive Director Caitlin Sutherland, who filed the complaint. He had an event on March 6th. So what hotel did he stay at on the 7th? The FEC complaint lists about $600 in travel fees that were spent on March 5th through the 8th, but news of the affair necessitates a closer look, she says. We have seen instances where individuals have disguised the nature of their payments. The easiest example is former Representative Republican Duncan Hunter. FEC records are not like real-time credit card statements, she said. 
Cunningham appears to have had two campaign events, as well as a podcast appearance and a dinner with donors on his calendar. On March 7th, a prominent California political donor posted on Facebook that she had met Mr. Cunningham at dinner the night before. On October 6th, it was reported by a local North Carolina press outlet that Mr. Cunningham had engaged in an extramarital affair in California in March of 2020. So it makes sense that this was the trip where he had the sex with the mistress. In the complaint, the Americans for Public Trust group asked the FEC to conduct an immediate and complete audit of his campaign spending uh, because the nature of an extramarital affair is deception and concealment, and North Carolinians deserve to know the extent of Mr. Cunningham may have converted campaign funds for personal use. By the way, this will not matter either. None of this will matter either to the very people who were like, oh, my gosh, Duncan Hunter, he needs to be thrown out. Right. This won't matter. Using campaign funds to do stuff with it. It's a big deal when uh, North Carolina Republican state lawmakers get busted, you know, using campaign funds for uh, for buying clothing and stuff like that. Big, big deal. This won't be a big deal because the Supreme Court, that's what matters. The Cunningham campaign blamed Cunningham's Republican opponent, Tom Tillis and his allies. In response to this, here's what they said, quote, once again, Senator Tillis and his allies are desperately trying to exploit a personal matter, all because their polling says the same thing ours does, that we're winning. OK, this is a false choice, exploiting a personal matter. It's not an either or. It's not a personal matter or a public matter. It can be both, particularly when you say that you're a man of honor and integrity and because of your service, you should, and your honor and integrity, you should be elected to public office. See, now it becomes personal and public. And so when something comes along to undermine that narrative, it is also of public interest. It's not strictly a personal matter. Now, here's a very personal matter. It is the bed that you sleep on. Okay. Uh, what bed do you sleep on? I'm not asking whose, I'm asking what bed, what bed do you sleep on, okay? Uh, do you sleep on a memory foam? Do you sleep on an inner spring mattress? How would you like to sleep on the bed that is at the Biltmore Hotel and Inn? How about that bed? It's the Biltmore Collection by Restonic, made in Fayetteville. They are available only at Mattress Man in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. If you are local, then you can get five-star white glove delivery service, um, if you would prefer to pick it up yourself, you can grab one and go. Head on over to their warehouse, uh, pick out the mattress that you want, throw it in the back of your truck and take off. The grab-and-go deal going on right now. A lot of uh, mattress companies, uh, they got a, they got crunched by the, uh, the pandemic, disrupted their supply lines and manufacturing systems and stuff, and so they are... Uh, they're short on inventory, but not Mattress Man. They've got a warehouse full of mattresses, so get on over there, grab and go, or go to one of their showrooms, or go to mattressmanstores.com. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. You will get the best mattress you've ever owned. Christy and I bought one years ago from them. We love it. It's a memory foam. We say it's like sleeping on a marshmallow, because it really is. Like, you lay on this thing, and... uh uh, it's like you just sink right into it. And what's really cool about the memory foam is that uh, when I get up in the morning uh, and and come to work here, when I make my you know 17-step commute, uh, I get out of bed, it doesn't wake Christy up. That's the beauty of the memory foam, uh, as well as the comfort. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com, buy local, and sleep better. So yesterday we had another one of Governor Roy Cooper's uh, press briefings. Well, I take it back. It wasn't one of his press briefings on COVID-19 because he wasn't there. He was MIA. 
He was MIA. But his Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mandy Cohen, was there. And uh, there wasn't really any news that came out of this. She said the three W's a lot, and that's about it. But I suspect the reason that there was no news may have had something to do with the quality of questions that were asked by the reporters. Okay, so I've put together a montage here of the reporter questions that got asked of Mandy Cohen, Secretary Cohen, at yesterday's COVID press conference. And um, I don't know. I just I I was I felt like they were lacking in something, maybe newsworthiness. Well, you take a listen. Dr. Cohen, thank you for taking my uh, question. Clayton Bauman with WITN uh, here in Greenville on Thursday. President Trump will be holding a. Uh a rally. Uh, I imagine you saw the images out of uh, Sanford, Florida last night. No, uh, there were some masks in the crowd, but overwhelmingly uh, no social distancing taking place. Does the state have concerns, especially with the trends uh, that you mentioned going up uh, about this uh, sort of rally taking place? Yes, uh, Secretary Cohen, this is Richard Craver with the Winston-Salem Journal. Um, given the, the trends that you're talking about that are going in the wrong direction, what ties or connections can you point to um, the relaxation of the restrictions from uh, phase 2.5 and it may be too early to decide from phase three but um, do you see any correlation between the increases in, in the trends going in the wrong directions and with those two um, relaxations of, of the restrictions hi dr cohen brian anderson here with eap had a couple questions for you uh i know you said that takes some time to to analyze the impact of President Trump's rallies. And it's been weeks since he had that rally in Winston-Salem and in Fayetteville. Do you know how many, if any, North Carolinians have been infected with the coronavirus as a direct result of their presence at those events? We have a follow-up from Brian Anderson with AP. Thanks. And just a quick yes or no for this one. Uh, Did you support Governor Cooper's transition to a phase three I know you said you're diving more into the data on Thursday. Will you recommend uh, going backward, as you put it, as far as tightening those restrictions? Oh, my God. All right, I got to stop. This guy, Brian Anderson, he's pretty new to the beat, I think, pretty new to the North Carolina AP job. I think I remember seeing him tweet, hey, I got this job or whatever. Worst questions. Just, I'm sorry, but I've been listening to these press conferences now for months, and his questions are usually the worst he's asking a question again about like the north carolina media is so focused on these rallies these trump rallies they keep asking about the trump rallies you get one question maybe a follow-up and you're asking about the trump rallies first question are you concerned about trump's upcoming rally of course she's going to say we're concerned with anybody that gets together in large groups of course she's going to say that second question any correlation with trends going up in the reopenings that have already occurred she dodged that one third question from ap how many people get in got infected from trump's previous rallies and then his follow-up is do you support your boss that was his follow-up question do you support the decision that he made? What do you think she's going to say? Of course, she said, my boss is great. I love my boss. I am I am perplexed as to the amount of prep you guys do not do before these events, before these briefings. How can you how can you get on the phone, put your name in a queue to ask a question? And this is what you come up with. These are your questions. Nobody's asking about the uh, 
Nobody's asking about the, the PCR tests and the thresholds and whether or not this is giving uh, like a lot of uh, false positives or you know these little stray bits and pieces of the COVID that shows up in people's uh, 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 tests in their results, these PCR tests. We're going to get into this later in the week. Nobody's asking about this kind of question. Nobody's asking, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Somebody did ask the second question there, the guy from the paper, he was like, you know, any connections to the reopenings and she dodges this, but nobody follows up then. Well, wait a minute. You said gyms were going to be super spreader locations. You, you kept them closed for so long. So it seems to me worthwhile to ask, have you seen any outbreaks at gyms? Nobody's asking this question. Nobody has asked this question since like two weeks after they reopened gyms. That's the last time this question got asked. And they just and, the, and when it got asked, they were like, well, it's too early to tell. So ne- the following week, did they ask? No. Week after that? No. Why would you not keep following up? Hi, Dr. Cohen. Thanks for taking my question. Um, you mentioned the impact of college reopenings on outbreaks in August. Oh, my God. But other colleges have had more slow and steady outbreaks. Um, App State, for example, has had a recent spike in cases. So I wanted to ask, what have you learned about best practices for colleges and universities? Do you have any new advice now that we are much later in the semester um, than when we saw large universities switch to online instruction in August? You know, should schools like Appalachian State change their instruction or make other policy moves this late in the semester? Obviously, that reporter has a story that she's working on. She has a story. She just needs a soundbite to put into the story. Maybe go over to App State campus, ask about what they're doing. That's how that that's that that's how that works. You've got a morning meeting that occurs or an afternoon meeting that occurs in the newsroom. They say, "Hey, why don't you head on over to App State? We got one of the press briefings today. Head over there, get some students, uh, you know, interviewed." and talk to somebody at the school about what steps they're doing to protect everybody, then come on back, monitor the press conference, and if you can get a question in about this, throw it in there, and you'll uh, you'll have another soundbite from Mandy Cohen. And that's how that story gets done. Trust me, that's how that story got done. Yes, thank you, Dr. Cohen. Uh, my question is, what concerns do the increasing numbers cause as it relates to some public school districts going to Plan A? Oh, my God. Hi, Secretary. Thank you for taking my, uh, my question. Um, I have uh, two questions. We, you know, we have these like two two hundred more hospitalizations today than we had ten days ago. Are there any specific parts of the state that you're concerned with, or um, you know, we're seeing two of the hospitalization regions that have close to half the cases. Is there anything in particular that you're looking at? We have a follow up from Rose Hoving with North Carolina Health. Um, thanks for the for taking this follow up. You know, in um, in other states and and countries, you know, the, like health officials are doing more targeted restrictions. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of New York City. Uh, you know, an area you know well. Um, there are parts in Brooklyn and Queens, for example, where officials closed bars and restaurants in one neighborhood kind of like a bullseye with the most restrictions in the middle. And then you stretch out from like, you know, areas around that. There's a, uh, some re- a few more restrictions, but not as many. Um, have you thought about taking that approach if we've got, you know, a part of the state where um, 
uh, you know, the cases are going up, not county by county, but oh maybe more God. regional. Do you notice what? Do you notice a pattern here with a similarity with all of the questions, all, virtually all of them, except for the second question that asked about the correlation between reopenings and uh, trends going up. Have you noticed though? They all share a similar what? Speculative nature. All the questions are about what's going to happen. Hey, what's what's up with the schools that could reopening? Any concerns about that? Any new advice for the colleges? Right. Everything is forward looking. There's no, hey, let's re let's go back and re-examine stuff from before. Let me get confirmation that what you said earlier is actually true. Here's the problem with speculative reporting is that you can never be proven false on this stuff. And it really doesn't serve any kind of news value. You're saying, hey, this might happen in the future. Okay. It also might not happen in the future. And if it doesn't happen in the future, you're going to go back and say, hey, you know what? We were wrong when we predicted that this thing might have happened. They never say that. They never go back and tell you that. This is the Michael Crichton argument against modern media. Thank you for taking my question, uh, Dr. Cohen. Um, so I had a few questions about uh, restaurants. So to what extent are restaurants contributing to the spread of COVID in North Carolina? Um, what aspect of the dining experience is most concerning? And will there be any changes to guidelines as the weather forces more diners indoors? Will there be any increase or decrease in capacity rules? See, again, speculative. What new rules are coming? By the way, uh, restaurants, how are they contributing to the spread? That's already been covered multiple times over the last several months. It's, you know, people sitting down and uh, talking with each other for a long period of time in an indoor space. By the way, she said that, and then she said, you know, we gave them all these protocols to follow. This is not news. All of these things have already been covered months ago. We have a follow-up from Ben Sesson with the News Observer. Uh, just one more question, Dr. Cohen. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you don't want North Carolina to go backwards. Um, so um, given the rise of hospitalizations over the past few weeks, what is the threshold for um, returning to some of those restrictions? And what restrictions do you think would have to return in order to slow the spread? See, there it is again. More speculation. Tell me what might happen in the future, doctor. That is of no news value. None. By the way, her answer on that one was that there's no magic number or singular metric. We'll let you know. Don't worry. Hey, Dr. Cohen. Um, similar to what other people have been asking, we are about to have hundreds of thousands of people mixing who have otherwise been um, isolated. That's with schools opening and with early voting starting on Thursday. Is With numbers already going up, is the state doing anything to prepare for an influx of potential a lot of new cases, a lot of new testing, and potentially a lot of new hospitalizations. I think that was our last question. I think I've said the three W's more today than in any other day. And that's the end of the briefing. And considering the caliber of those questions, I think a lot of those reporters might need to sit out and let some other reporters have a shot. Not that the governor's staff is going to allow them that shot, but if some of these uh, major media outlet folks, if 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 they are willing to just, you know what, maybe I don't need to ask the Secretary of Health and Human Services to speculate on some random stuff for my news story. You know, maybe I should let some other people who have never gotten to ask questions, maybe I should let them ask some questions because they might have better questions. Now, if you have a question about selling a home, I've got the answer. Rowena Patton, her
Her phone number is 333-4483. Uh, she outsells 99% of the realtors in the state of North Carolina. She is also the official and only Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. Homes for Heroes is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. This goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military, veterans, active duty, and retirees. She's given back approaching $800,000 to local folks through this program. Uh, call the only agent that I would call if you're selling, if you're buying too. We're using Rowena Patton to buy our house as well. So give her a call at 333-4483 and put her and her all-star powerhouse team to work for you. 333-4483 or mountainhomehunt.com and then start packing. So here is the problem with these press conferences, one among many, I should say. But here's the problem with these press conferences. The North State Journal did a very good article on all of this months ago. And finally, the News and Observer has done a story. Kind Well, they did a story. And I, will, I should give credit where it's due. Colin Campbell did a story. Headline, Governor Cooper's COVID-19 press conferences often leave out conservative media. And... It's not even often leaving them out. It They always leave them out, okay? Governor Roy Cooper is one of the only governors in the region who doesn't allow journalists to attend his COVID-19 press conferences in person, a policy that some conservative-leaning news outlets say shuts them out from asking questions. Okay, it does shut them out. It is by design. That's why they don't get on the line. I've been watching these press conferences for now seven months they are not allowed to ask questions. They don't get through. Journalists sign up to ask a question over the phone, and a Cooper staffer selects and calls on reporters from that list. This is funny. Uh, the North State Journal actually did, an, as I mentioned, did an entire story about the software and uh, the program that the Democratic governor and his staffers have adopted. They're using this. And it was never designed to do press conferences. It was designed for meetings. It was designed for these organizers when they would go and do presentations on how to get out the vote and organize and do all of this stuff. And it, they they designed the platform to allow breakout groups so you can put people into groups and then you could basically ignore the ones you don't want to talk to, right? So if you sign up on the sheet, they know who you are and where you're from, and they can put you off into the kids' table so you don't get to participate. Mm-hmm. He then goes on to compare it to neighboring states, you know, uh, Virginia and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Kentucky, Maryland, Tennessee, Delaware, West Virginia. I don't know why this is newsworthy or noteworthy, just because they're in our proximity. They're, they're somewhere on the eastern seaboard or something that... That that means like we should compare ourselves to it. I don't care what any other governor is doing. I don't care how they do their news conferences. I care how my governor does his news conferences. Okay. Quote, although dial-in media briefings have been an adjustment for everyone, this setup has allowed smaller outlets and those outside of Raleigh to be able to ask questions regularly to keep their audiences and readers informed, said the governor's office. Is a press spokeswoman, um, Dory McMillan. Uh, so this, see, so this is for you guys. Now, pay no attention to the fact that you can do both. You can have in person, and you can take some over the phone. You can do both. It's not an either-or proposition, like so many things in our modern culture requires us to view them as. This is not a choice. You can do both. 
media outlets located elsewhere in the state previously had to attend Cooper's press conferences in person to ask questions. She says as the virus continues circulating without a reliable treatment or vaccine, the briefings are held this way for the safety of staff, leadership, and the press corps. Again, if you can't figure out how to do an in-person press briefing, then I don't think you should be the ones telling us how businesses can and cannot reopen safely. Seriously, there's there's no reason why you can't figure this out. There are other locations that are much larger that you can go to and socially distance everybody. If Joe Biden can figure this out, you can too. You're doing them twice a week. Records of Cooper's August news conferences released in response to a public records request from the uh, Raleigh News and Observer show that uh, large Raleigh-based news outlets get to ask questions at virtually every event, while conservative media is rarely called on. So Colin Campbell's big story on this looked at one month worth of data, one month's worth of records from these press conferences. August, that's it. Stuff's been going on since March, guys. March, April, May, June, July, September, and now into October, seven other months we're talking about. And you pulled August. But even then, you found out what everybody else who pays attention knows, which is the Raleigh media gets most of the questions. News and Observer, Charlotte Observer, the AP, uh, WRAL gets in there, WITN, CBS 17. Everybody knows why this is occurring. You guys don't ask good questions. For reference, see my previous segment where I played your questions. Carolina Journal, a publication of the conservative John Locke Foundation, says it has a reporter sign up for virtually every news conference, and that person rarely gets to ask a question. In fact, I've never heard the reporter get through to ask a question for the governor. Usually, if like I think I heard one about two or three months ago, and it was only at a press briefing where Mandy Cohen was there. So they'll let Cohen take a question from the Carolina Journal. They'll never let the governor take a question. Also snubbed during the news conference, the newspaper, North State Journal, and Charlotte Talk Radio Station, WBT. He doesn't talk to any of those outlets, though, uh, Colin Campbell. He doesn't, uh, there's no inclusion of any kind of uh, interview with them. He cites a tweet uh, that WBT's reporter Brett Jensen sent out saying he's never been called on. He just didn't interview these people. Asked about the lack of questions from the conservative outlets, Governor's Press spokeswoman McMillan said that the office doesn't have a formal policy for prioritizing the callers during news conferences. Well, what does that mean? You don't have a formal policy? Well, what does that mean? You don't need a formal policy to know, hey, that's Carolina Journal. They go into uh, Group B, Kids Table. Oh, there's uh, WRAL, Group A. Is that a formal policy? The way they just accept these things, again, just just a modicum of, of skepticism, just a little bit. Just pretend for half a second that the governor is a Republican. How would you treat that response? She says reporters are called on to try and give different media markets and types of outlet, TV, radio, print, wire. That's hilarious. You know, the only radio she ever calls on is UNC stations. That's it. Or uh, NPR stations, I should say. WUNC. Those are the only radio stations she ever calls on. The public radio ones. You're telling me that's a coincidence? You're telling me that the number one radio station in the Charlotte market, WBT, you're telling me that, that they're not allowed to get on because what? WSOC TV got on? That's absurd. You're putting on NPR affiliates 
but you don't put on WFAE gets on the NPR affiliate in Charlotte, but WBT doesn't. Why is that? Don't whiz on my boots and tell me it's raining. 25 to 30 reporters dial into a typical briefing, she says, with generally about half raising their hand for questions, and there is normally time for 8 to 10 questions. A review of call logs from three news conferences in August show the bulk of the questions went to TV stations, particularly those serving the triangle. I'm, uh, this this analysis of three news conferences in August, it's this, it's almost worthless. Okay, It's almost worthless. Three news conferences out of seven months' worth? It's not very valuable. Unlike the Husqvarna Fall Sale, a general equipment rental, really, really valuable right now, folks. You can get awesome deals, huge savings on all sorts of power equipment, gas-powered and battery-powered equipment. Go to generalrents.com and take a look at what they've got for sales. The Husqvarna Fall Sale through the end of the month. They've got uh, trimmers and saws and leaf blowers, and lawn mowers, and chainsaws. Um, maybe you need a big mower. Maybe you need a riding mower. Great deals right now at, at the Husqvarna Fall Sale. Maybe you are, I was actually uh, watching the guys do the uh, the yard work out at the apartment complex, and I'm watching them. The guy's like struggling to fix and get this uh, stand-on mower fixed, and uh, I was almost half a mind to scream out the balcony window, you know, hey, Go to General Equipment Rental and get one of the new uh, stand-on mowers. Husqvarna actually just raised the price by $1,000, but General Equipment Rental is keeping it where it was, okay? So, like, you're already coming out ahead. It's already an appreciating asset. Look at that. Go to GeneralRents.com, get pre-qualified for 0% APR for 48 months, and uh, also you can learn about commercial fleet discounts. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. It's at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. Whatever the project, General Equipment Rental has the tool that you need. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. All right, so the last little bit here from this News and Observer piece, which again, I appreciate that they even did the story. It's very magnanimous of them. They get their questions answered, uh, but nobody else does, or a lot of other people don't. So I appreciate them looking out for other people by doing this story. Cooper also received complaints that follow-up questions were not allowed during the first months of the pandemic. Reporters' lines were cut after they finished their question. Since August, reporters now have the option to request one follow-up question, which Cooper's spokeswoman says is the result of a request from the Capitol Press Corps. Some reporters have used that option to ask unrelated questions, and fewer reporters overall are called on during the news conferences. See, so it's really your fault, reporters. Now, look, I've made this comment before, this criticism before, and there is legitimacy here. When, you know, you're a reporter and uh, they say, okay, here's, you know, you're, you're called on to ask a question. If you say, I have a follow-up in the industry, Having a follow-up means that you want some more clarity or there's something related to the last question that I just asked you or the answer that you gave me. It does not mean you get to ask an unrelated question. And Colin Campbell's exactly right. A lot of reporters do use this, quote, follow-up opportunity to ask unrelated questions like the AP's Brian Anderson did earlier in the audio uh, montage I played. 
So there is that, and that does cut down on the number of reporters. But but, but blaming the reporters' follow-up questions for the fact that you won't open up the lines for other reporters from, like, WBT and North State Journal, uh, that's just... It's just duplicitous. It's dishonest. Okay. Uh, finally, he says some reporters say uh, they like the current press conference format that it limits their potential exposure to COVID-19. WRAL reporter Laura Leslie said on Twitter recently that because she routinely visits her elderly parents, she, quote, appreciates not being crowded into a small room to ask questions I could just as easily ask virtually. So, see, it's really best to limit everybody else so Laura can have access to both the governor and her elderly parents. See, it really is about her. So shut up and just take down the notes. Be the stenographer for the governor. Maybe if you want to send some questions via email, maybe his press shop will ignore those too. That's how that goes. Seriously, that's how it goes. Meanwhile, North Carolina COVID-19 recoveries now tops 200,000. Not making headlines not being mentioned by the governor or his secretary of health, Mandy Cohen, during their press briefings. The Rhino Times of Greensboro, article by John Hammer. On Mondays, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services releases its report on how many people in the state have tested positive for COVID-19 and then recovered. Okay, The NCDHHS reports the number of new cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number tested, the percent who tested positive, and the number of deaths. They do that on a daily basis. But the number of people who tested positive and recovered, that's only reported once a week. On Monday, October 12th, DHHS reported that North Carolina has now topped 200,000 people as recovered. It was big news when the state went over 200,000 uh, for people who tested positive. But for some reason, it's not considered newsworthy, uh, newsworthy for the state to break the 200,000 mark in recoveries. Do you think that might, I don't know, give people a more realistic understanding of the threat and the danger of COVID-19? When you hear 200,000 cases, oh my God, 200,000 cases, 200,000 cases, we have 200,000 cases. Do you think maybe it might help people have a better understanding if they were to follow up like a week later and say, hey, 200,000 people have recovered. 200,000 people have recovered. Of the total cases, 200,000 people have recovered. But they don't. Because I guess that doesn't get the clicks or it's not forward looking. Is that the idea? Right? It's not speculative journalism. All oh, that's just stuff that happened in the past. Who cares about that? <laughs> well, I do. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate it. It's the best way to support the program. You can also contribute at the Patreon page. All of the links are in the description of the podcast and at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Talk later and don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>